If you have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. And we'll go on to uh, chapter 3, verse 4. So that's our main message for this morning. Colossians 2, verse 16, right through to Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. In our last message on the book of Colossians, presented on chapter 2, verse 1 to 15, we looked at how a true shepherd cares for his flock. We saw that he had a threefold role. Number one, a true shepherd feeds the flock. That is, he teaches the saints of God the word of God so that their souls may prosper. And number two, a true shepherd leads the flock, that is, by his life, by his deeds, and becomes their example, always leading them into the paths of righteousness. Finally, number three, a true shepherd protects the flock from wolves in sheep's clothing and their damnable heresies. And he always does that by sound doctrine, by exposing error in light of truth through the preaching of the word of God. And then we saw more specifically how the Apostle Paul carried out that threefold ministry of a shepherd. And as we examined his care for the church, we saw that it was illustrated through these four aspects. Number one, his conflict for the church. In Colossians 2, verse 1. Number two, his concern for the church. In Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3. And number three, his caution for the church in Colossians 2, verses 4 and 8. And finally, number four, his counsel for the church in Colossians 2, verses 5 and 7. And then in the latter part of the text, in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15, we saw how the apostle demonstrated the completeness of the believer in Christ. The believer is complete in Christ because of number one, the spiritual circumcision not made with hands, verse 11. Number two, the believer is complete in Christ through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead, in verse 12. And number three, the believer is complete in Christ through his victory, in verse 15. Consequently, we now have freedom from the law because Christ took it away, nailing it to the cross. Since this is so, that is, since the believer is complete in Christ, the Apostle Paul now proceeds to expose some of the dangerous teachings that were infiltrating the church and robbing the saints of their liberty in Christ, and thereby entangling the new believer afresh. 
So the first warning sounded here in verse 16 is, watch out for legalism. The apostle has just explained how the believer is complete in Christ. If that being the case, that is, if the believer really is complete in Christ, then why in heaven's name would the believer ever want to subject himself or herself to a renewed observance of the ceremonial law? At one time, these things, such as the eating and drinking of certain foods, the keeping of certain holidays, and the carrying out of sacrifices daily and the observations of the requirements of the new moon, all of these once had their place amongst the obedient children of the old covenant and all of the children of God were expected to follow those requirements of the ceremonial law faithfully. But, says the Apostle Paul in verse 17, referring to these laws, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And what he is saying is this. In the Old Testament dispensation, all of these things, the sacrifices, the forms, the ceremonies, and even the weekly Sabbaths, were but shadows of Christ. They all symbolized him, or they all pointed to him. And now that Christ has come and has fulfilled the redemptive types and requirements for salvation, the believer has everything he needs in Jesus Christ. And since the believer is complete in Christ, the believer is subject to Christ alone, or under law to Christ, which is the rule of grace. That is, the responsibility of the present-day believer is to walk in fellowship with the risen Christ, the head of the body, in whom dwells the Spirit of God. That is, in each believer because he is a member of that body, in whom dwells the Spirit of God to empower the believer to newness of life. And this newness of life is manifested in subjection and obedience to the exalted Christ alone. Therefore, no man should judge you as to the keeping of the law. You, the believer, are responsible to Christ for your conduct and not to man. The second warning comes in verses 18 and 19. Watch out for false mysticism. Paul writes, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands 
having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Sometimes these little passages are a little difficult to understand, but in short, there is such a thing as an innate desire or need for man to worship. Man is naturally inclined to be religious. He has always been faced with a spiritual void because he was made for fellowship with God. But because of sin, he has been separated from his creator. This being the case, Satan has always been able to capitalize on man's inherent weakness, his desire to worship. How beautifully this fits into Satan's plan and desire to be worshipped. And so Satan is always ready to supply man with a false religion and cults of all descriptions, one to fit or suit every man's fancy. All through history, we have seen the various types of religions and cults perpetuated upon mankind by this one called Satan, the fallen angel Lucifer. One of Israel's greatest problems has been idolatry or worshiping of false gods. And for that, they were brought into captivity. First, the Assyrian nation took the ten tribes of Israel to Assyria around about 721 B.C., and then some 150 years later, Judah and Benjamin were also led into captivity by the Babylonians. And as time progressed, religions became intermingled. The best of each religion was mixed in with other beliefs, and soon bits of Judaism, bits of Greek philosophy, and bits of Oriental mysticism formed new religions, each appealing to the natural man, but each robbing the believer of the truth and simplicity of the gospel of grace. The natural man can easily be misled into worshiping angels because it sounds so humble to say, I myself am so unworthy to directly approach God the Father or Christ the Son, I will therefore make use of the mediating angels and spirits and other beings who can present my cause in a more suitable manner than I could ever. But this is nothing short of pride of intellect and disbelief when God himself has declared through his word in 1 Timothy 2, 5, 6, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There is but one mediator, Christ Jesus. He is the preeminent one whom we have been talking about 
these past few verses. And if we be in Christ, then we are complete in him. He alone is our mediator, and he alone is worthy of our worship. That warning is still being sounded today. Watch out for false mysticism. No other religion has so abused this particular technique of intermingling of false mysticism with the grace of God, as has Roman Catholicism. Its doctrines of justification by works, purification in purgatory after death, and mediating saints and angels, has adopted those things which the apostles of old refused and warned against. Instead, the Roman Catholic Church has introduced these things to its unsuspecting followers as traditional Christianity. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 18, Let no man beguile you of your reward. Don't let anyone cause you to lose your reward or crowns for service by having you shoot at the wrong mark. By this voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, the believer will not be holding the head, the exalted head of the church, Christ Jesus. This worshipping of angels completely denies the new creation. It fails to recognize the tremendous truth that all Christians, all true believers, are one body, and that the head of that body is Christ alone. Not holding the head is not recognizing our link with him, both in life and by the Spirit. He is the source of our nourishment, our blessings. He supplies the body or the individual members or believers with spiritual gifts for the edification of the whole body, the church. And everything we need is found in him. This now brings us to the third warning in verses 20 to 23. Watch out for carnal asceticism. That is, watch out for denial of bodily comforts and needs. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. These rules or regulations are man-made. They are man's ways of trying to subdue the sin nature in order to reach a higher degree of righteousness or holiness, but it never works. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this. Listen, dearly beloved, if you are really Christ's, and if you have really been born again and have trusted in the complete cleansing power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for all your sins, and you have died with him to the world and the old man, then why would you try to become more holy, more righteous, more spiritual through carnal asceticism? 
by denying your body certain food or certain drink or comfort, by denying your body its needs, you will not nor cannot subdue the flesh or the sin nature. It cannot be done. Again, as we look all around us today, we see so many who are yet outside the grace of God doing just that. Monks and nuns have deprived themselves of the comfort and necessities of life under the misconception that by doing so they shall reach a higher spiritual state or subdue the evil sin nature and again more holiness. Others have resorted to self-inflicted corporal punishments such as flagellation in an effort to achieve this, but it doesn't work. It cannot work. And why is that? Because it is impossible to obtain holiness by carnal asceticism or carnal means just as it is impossible to obtain salvation through physical suffering. We are first of all saved, not by what we have undergone, but rather by what our Lord Jesus has undergone for us at the cross of Calvary. It is Christ who died for us at the cross of Calvary, and now lives on the right hand of God for us. He is the power and the source of holiness for us, as well as justification when we believe. And by the Holy Spirit, he indwells in us. And as we yield ourselves to God, as those who are alive from the dead, Christ is able to live out his life of holiness in us and for us. So watch out for carnal asceticism. Such practices seem to have an appearance of wisdom and a high level of spirituality. But because they are after the commandments and doctrines of men, they will perish and accomplish nothing. Now we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. All that has come between chapter 2, 12 and chapter 3, 1 has been a series of warnings against false teachings and systems which would rob the true believer of the truth of unity with Christ in death and resurrection. If we were to connect verse 12 of chapter 2 with verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, we might see clearly, more clearly, the following connection. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 12, immediately with chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and here's how it would look. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. If ye then be risen with Christ, 
Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We must realize as we delve into this chapter that, Christ, that as Christians, we do not stand before God on the basis of responsibility, but rather on the basis of resurrection. The responsible man has always failed. He could never keep the law. The holy law always condemned him. He was always guilty of sin and disobedience before God. But by virtue of grace, Christ took the sinner's condemnation voluntarily to the cross. Christ bore the sinner's judgment upon that cross, died and was buried and rose again. Similarly, by the same virtue of grace, the sinner through faith has voluntarily died with Christ, was buried, and is now risen with him to newness of life. We are one in Christ. As we partake in his death by faith, we also likewise partake in his resurrection by faith. The believer not only has a perfect substitute and advocate before the throne of God, but he also partakes of the life of Christ. Thus, we are one with Christ in union with him. Looking then at chapter 3, verse 1, we read, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ seateth, sitteth on the right hand of God. We come to the first point in this particular section, which I've entitled, The Position of the Christian. The Position of the Christian. Since we are risen with Christ, we are therefore automatically seated with him in heaven. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that God hath raised us up, notice, hath, past tense, hath raised us up together and made, not will make, but made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that Ephesians 2, 7, in things to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kingdom toward us through Christ Jesus. We are again reminded of this same idea in Romans 6, verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Positionally, because of our union with Christ, we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints. 
We are also joint heirs with Christ, the scriptures tell us. All that Christ has for us will be ours one day. It's guaranteed. But God, who sees the end from the beginning, sees it as already done. This being the case, we come to the second point. Two, the perspective of the Christian. Since we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ by virtue of our union with him, we should now have a new perspective or direction. It should be heavenward. And so we as believers are commanded now in verse 1 to, number 1, seek those things which are above, and in verse 2, number 2, to set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. All our thoughts and affections should be directly upward toward the heavens where our blessed Lord is seated. Because he is there, so also should our hearts be. Since we are raised from the dead with him, since we have been crucified with Christ and resurrected with him and made to live anew, the great object of our contemplation should now be the heavenly world and the things of Christ and not the things on earth, such as wealth, honor, power, fame, or privilege. Our affection should not be primarily focused on houses, lands, clothing, prestige, entertainment, or comfort. Since we are dead, verse 3, we are dead to the world, dead to sin, dead to earthly pleasures. These things should no longer have a hold or an addiction over us if we don't allow them to. <clears throat> and our life, says the apostle, is hid with Christ in God. I believe the idea here which the Apostle wishes to relay is that of safety. That eternal life which is in all believers is a valuable treasure which is laid up with Christ in heaven where God is. There it is safely deposited. It is with the Redeemer and he is in the presence of God. And thus nothing can reach it or take it away. It has not been left in our hands for safekeeping where we might lose it. No wonder the Apostle Paul was able to say later in 2 Timothy 1.12, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. This now brings us to the third and final point in this particular section, the perfection of the Christian. Verse 4, the perfection of the Christian. We don't hear this too often today. There is a day coming 
when Christ shall return to this earth in glory, and all the saints from all ages shall come with him. And when that happens, we shall all be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our vile bodies shall be changed and fashioned like unto his glorious body, says Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. For our cons uh, conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We shall appear with him in glory. It will be his glory to have all his redeemed from ages past with him. He will come to be glorified in his saints, and it will be the saints' glory to come with Christ. And with all this, these thoughts in mind, the Apostle Paul completes the doctrinal teaching of this epistle to the Colossians. The rest now concerns the practical aspects of the Christian's walk, which we'll try to deal with in another message if the Lord be not come. And so in the way of summary, we have seen that in Christ we have deliverance from the power of darkness and have been translated into his spiritual kingdom. In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and have been made to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, and we have been reconciled to God through his death. We are now members of his mystical body, the church, and members one of another, and are called to hold the head and in all things to be subject to him. Christ is to be our heart's blessed object. Christ is the antidote for every form of error. And in Christ we are complete. Christ is now to be our soul's portion, and we are to be occupied with him by having our heart and our mind set on heavenly things. And we are to manifest his life here on earth as we wait for him to return when we shall be manifested with Christ in glory. Again, our time has run out, but now, as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this solemn question. Are you in Christ this morning? Romans 8, 9 says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That is a very solemn statement. If you do not have the indwelling Spirit of Christ this morning, then you are outside of God's blessings and gift of eternal life. You will have only the awful wrath of God to come one day and experience for all eternity 
being separated from God forever and living in the burning lake of fire. Don't choose that path. Yield to him this morning if you haven't done so already. He will not turn you away. For he loves you. He loves me. And he has shed his blood for you and for me so that we can be reconciled to him and to be able to realize the wonders of his grace. He will not turn anyone who truly seeks him and comes to him by faith for his forgiveness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this book written to the Colossians some 2,000 years ago. We thank thee that it encourages us and draws us every time we read it closer to the one who gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to walk in newness of life each day. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it in his name and for his glory always. Amen.